0: Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast for June 2013. My name is George Miller and my guest in this programme is novelist Barbara Kingsolver, who last appeared in the podcast in 2010 when she discussed her orange prize-winning novel, The Lacuna. Barbara was back in London again recently to talk about her latest book, Flight Behaviour, which was shortlisted for the Women's Fiction Prize and has recently appeared in paperback. Flight Behaviour is set in a world that Barbara Kingsolver knows well rural Tennessee, where life is hard, the economy has tanked, and people know they must settle for what they can get. Everyone knows each other's business. The only place in the county where a woman can park her car and not incite gossip is in her own driveway. The novel follows events in the life of Della Robbia Turnbow, now in her late 20s, who got married much too young and to the wrong man. Hers is a life, King Silver writes, measured in half-dollars and clipped coupons, and culled hopes flattened between uninsulated walls When the novel opens, the only escape that seems available to De is adultery But on her way to her first tryst with her lover, she has an astonishing encounter which at first she can't explain Millions of monarch butterflies in a forest, setting it aglow like a living sea of fire the butterflies, it later becomes apparent, have been disrupted from their normal migratory pattern by climate change, and ended up in the Appalachians rather than Mexico, a detour which could lead to them being wiped out. The changes that the butterflies bring to Della Robbia's life, her awakening to what is at stake, and how she can channel her own flight behaviour, are at the core of the book. And the beating of the butterflies' wings also sends ripples through the local community, church and the media. In an afterword to the book, Barbara mentions the challenge of writing a fictional story within a plausible biological framework. I began by remarking that instead of putting a more obvious environmental disaster at the heart of the book, she had opted, with her orange butterflies, for something mysterious, beautiful, almost mystical.
1: Well, that's the whole problem, isn't it? That this is an apocalypse that we really can't see we can't see it coming. My beginning point with this novel was uh, that question of why aren't we talking about climate change? Why can't we talk about climate change? Why are we so busy denying that it's a problem in very many ways? I mean, some people deny it outright by saying that the scientists are lying. Others of us deny it by going on about our carbon-burning business pretending that this isn't really an issue. I wanted to write about that denial, and so it seemed to me that a presentation of climate change that was subject to many interpretations, including mystical ones, something that looked really beautiful, or at least If we wanted to say it was beautiful rather than disastrous would allow us to do that would be a terrific terrain for for unteasing these questions about denial
0: and was it the mudslides which happened in Mexico in 2010 which kind of set you on the path which eventually led to this this mountain in, in Tennessee
1: interesting question No, it happened another way, uh, which was very surprising to me. This isn't usually how my novels begin, but I'd been thinking for years about how to write a novel about climate change. It just seemed, I I couldn't find any doorway into this, you know, sort of into this granite tomb. I just kept walking around and around it, trying to find the way in that would lead me to a novel. And then one morning, I believe it was January 8th, I woke up with a vision in front of my eyes. That's the only thing I can call it. It was very dreamlike, but I don't think it was a dream. I think that I just woke up and had this vivid visual image in mind of millions of glowing orange monarch butterflies settling on the trees in the in the wooded valley up behind on the mountainside behind my farm where i lived i just saw that i don't know where it came from but what a gift it was because when i saw it i i said hello that's my novel i was enough of a biologist i am enough of a biologist to know what that would mean because those monarchs are supposed to be in mexico if they were here that would look beautiful and Many people in my neighborhood would call it a miracle, and other people in my neighborhood would start charging admission, but biologists would say, this is a disaster. This means a lot of things have gone very, very wrong. So from there, I had, the, I guess, the heart, the core of the novel, both in terms of theme and in terms of plot. But I knew that if I was going to write about this phenomenon, I would have to see it as it is in the world, uh, in the place where it's supposed to be, which is central Mexico. So I I organized to go and visit the the monarch overwintering sites. As I said, this happened in January, and so I made the trip in February. It was a very quick turnaround because I had to go and see this. And as it happened, I arrived there immediately after the, the disastrous floods. I mean, so immediately that we couldn't even get in. They were saying, no, the monarchs are all dead. Everything is, you know, people have been killed. This tragedy has happened. It's this weather we have never seen before. Something has happened that's unprecedented. And so, of course, my novel sort of ballooned before my eyes. Something I had dreamed sort of came true.
0: So you had had this wonderful vision, if I can call it that, and you had what was going to become a narrative. But this issue of the biological plausibility, was that was that one that you had to to do a lot of work on, you know, to to get the butterflies there, as it were, in a way which would be scientifically credible.
1: Well, I did some thinking before I talked with any biologists I knew, I spent some time thinking about what this would mean if it did happen this way. I knew already that there were a lot of migratory species, mainly birds, that have been shifted in dramatic ways, whose whose ranges have been moved by climate change. This is very well documented. Nothing like this has happened to the monarchs, but I spent some time thinking about whether it could happen and what would be the circumstances, and then I sort of cautiously broached the subject first with my brother who's who's a biologist and an entomologist and he didn't laugh at me he said wow that's really interesting so then I was emboldened to go to to some more professionals and ultimately to go to uh to see the Dr. Monarch um Dr. Lincoln Brower who knows more about monarchs than anyone on earth and he was so kind and so helpful he didn't laugh at me he said that's a really interesting thought that that is the kind of thing that could happen it hasn't happened but yes it could happen and so he he was very gracious and helped me to well he let me see his lab and he he helped me to get to know the specifics of monarch science in order to write about it because in a novel, you have to know all the details. You have to get the details right.
0: Your central character, Delarobia, with the, the fantastic name—the name which seems to resist abbreviations—only a couple of characters seem to me to to try to abbreviate her name, and she doesn't. She doesn't really go for it. How, how did? Can you tell me a little bit about how she took shape in your imagination?
1: She came along very quickly. Once I visualized this scene, and I knew it would happen in this place—the place where I live, the, the region where I live. I thought that was an ideal location to play out this kind of battle of what we call the culture wars, the deniers versus the believers, the science versus the faith. I really wanted to talk about how people decide what to believe and where they get their information. So this was a good grounding for the novel, so I knew she had to be someone of that region, someone from my neighborhood, and I could well imagine someone of her ilk discovering this not knowing what to make of it and and how it would change her life i needed a character who was very naive a character who had a lot to learn but who would be smart and funny and fascinating and really pull the reader into the story someone who would earn your sympathies even if she didn't always make the right decisions and in fact at first, it seems she never makes the right decisions, but that's the kind of character that readers can can kind of toss in their their, their chips uh, with, they can really invest in. I don't know why she has red hair. I don't know exactly why she's named Delarobia. Some of those things just kind of happened. Um, I just kind of conceived of her all of a piece. I just saw her marching up that hill with her red hair flying, and I knew I was gonna follow her up that mountain.
0: When we meet her, she's in her late twenties. She's got two children. She married very young, and she's living in a small town in Tennessee where where people's minds, where people's attitudes are pretty pretty much hardened, and there's the people are set in their ways. And yet she's not. She's she's still open. She's still questing. She's she's very much I mean she thinks she's looking for a lover, but in fact it seemed to me she was she was questing for something much more profound than that.
1: Well, she's looking for a way out. You're right. She's very unformed. She's, I guess, a case of arrested development in a a very sort of literal career path kind of way because she got pregnant when she was 17. She married this boy who is just sweet as can be and dumb as a box of rocks and, you know, a very poor match. But there you go. It happened. This happens. This is particularly perhaps in rural places. It's just how life happens. And I I wanted to write about flight behavior, about running away, running away from the truth, running away from our lives, from the unpleasantness or from the, the stultifying, the boring, the the frightening, all the different ways that we run away. So I wanted to create a, a sense of entrapment for this young woman, from which she has been trying to fly for over 10 years. She's very constrained. It's not just that people in this region are set in their ways. I think we're all set in our ways. We all believe we're right. We all sort of choose what to believe and then collect information to support ourselves. but. We all have these opportunities to confront the truth, whether those opportunities, whether we choose them or more more commonly those opportunities choose us. I wanted to just kind of throw her into the situation where, where she would have to stop running away and finally have to look the truth full in the face in a lot of different ways, in, in, in terms of escaping her marriage, in terms of escaping biological truths, in terms of facing herself and her own fears. That's what was most interesting to me about her, how she would handle the truth. It's a great opportunity as a novelist when you begin with a character who has a lot of potential but who's very constrained. And one of many things I wanted to write about in this novel was the globalization of rural farming places, I mean, it's easy to think that these people are very isolated. They're not very much in touch with the world. However, the minute she encounters this extraordinary sight, she discovers this phenomenon, her life begins to open out. First, she becomes the most important person in her family, then in her church, then she's the talk of her town, then she's on statewide and then national TV, and then this image of her goes viral globally. So her life, at one point, she describes it as one of those gas station maps that you keep opening and opening until it's the size of the windscreen of your automobile. And then she has to figure out, in the second half of the book, how to fold that life back up again to the size of one person but to make that a person she wants to be so both in a personal way and in a sort of thematic way this is about connection
0: and you mentioned her encounter with the media there and it's clear that when the media gets hold of you then you lose control you lose control of your story you lose control of your image you you simply become whatever they want you to be in order to to suit what their sponsors and their viewers uh, want.
1: Exactly, you are a pawn in their hand. In their hands, she doesn't know this. Of course, she's never been on television before. She believes what this this. <laughs> this e- this evil interviewer tells her, and with with no notion of how this is going to change her life, how embarrassed she will be, how how invaded really she will feel when her personal life is put on display in front of her in laws and everybody else. But more importantly, perhaps in in the wider scope of this novel, um, it's kind of an examination of how how our news media function. so often as entertainment rather than being uh, sort of dedicated to the service of informing us they are dedicated to the service of gaining more viewers to please their sponsors and so one of the questions the novel is asking is why is it so difficult for us to talk about climate change and one of the answers is that media are not doing their job of informing us we're being played with we're being disinformed misinformed confused uh, because the sponsors in many cases are the oil companies the petrol companies as you would say they don't want people to stop burning their product that's the last thing they want it's really not uh, not straightforward at all
0: de la Rubia's husband Cub is a habitual channel surfer and this really irritates um, her about him and she wonders why there are so many channels and later in the novel she comes to the realisation it's so that each constituency can have the channel which suits and flatters its own viewpoint and this idea of sort of self-enclosedness not, uh, not just on the part of people who um, deny or don't want to hear about climate change but also you're implicitly critical of the, you know, the, the educated and the scientists in their own little bubbles and not really understanding that it's more than just about laying facts before people and then they'll they'll change their behavior.
1: Exactly. I really entered this novel thinking a lot about why we believe what we believe. And why is it that why is it that a lot of people can look at the same set of facts and walk away believing different things because that's that's really what's going on. So I did a lot of reading in cognitive psychology uh, which I sort of distilled into that observation of, De- of Della Robbia that there's so many channels so many stations so that if we play our cards right we only listen to people who agree with us and that's kind of well that's very much supported by facts. The cognitive psychologists who have studied people and the way we make up our minds tell us that we're all really deluding ourselves. We think that we gather the facts and decide then what is true. In actual fact, mostly the way we work is we decide what is true, then we gather facts to support and make us feel convinced of our of our initial our initial beliefs. And we all do this to some extent. The only exceptions are scientists who are very carefully trained to be objective observers and they even set up experiments so they can't know, you know, they do the double blind thing so they can't know what they're seeing and they only just record experimental observation and then make conclusions. The rest of us just don't work that way. So okay, if we decide first what we believe, how do we decide that? we look to sources we trust we decide first who we trust and that happens at a visceral level not at a rational level something in our in our in our chest you know or sort of the back of our mind says okay this person is a friend this is my minister this is my talk show host this is my um, knowledgeable professor we decide this person is on my team I can look to him as the head of my team and then we just sign on. We pretty much take whatever that person says to be true. And so thus the many different television stations and the many different radio stations. We find the leader of our team and then we'll, we're prepared to believe. So what this all adds up to in practical terms is that if if we want to think about climate change and the conversation and the difficulty we have in talking with people who are on the other team, not just with respect to environmental issues, but all issues, you know, the other political party, the other sort of interest group. We seem to think that we can keep lobbing information at them like grenades. And if we keep doing it, the boneheads will finally get enough information that they'll believe as we do. That's not going to work it's not how we work the only thing that will work is if we can sit down with someone from the other team and maybe break bread maybe share a meal develop some trust first then we can listen to each other as long as they're boneheads <laughs> we're not going to believe a thing they say and so and and i'm seeing this uh, and i'm very interested in my region of the united states there's something called the green church movement where these Rather conservative churches have environmental uh, working groups because people have become willing to listen to trusted pastors and so forth and want to do work on preserving creation. It's very exciting. It's a new way of crossing these boundaries.
0: The information flow, it seemed to me from the novel, is not one way, or it certainly oughtn't to be one way because... You get a very strong sense of just what it's like to live in a rural community where the economy has tanked, where people are being laid off, they're, they're scrabbling around for work, they're visiting second-hand stores, they're going to dollar stores to get Christmas presents for their children. The libraries have been closed. so. Thinking about climate change is a luxury because their their major concern is how they're going to feed their families and People who come in from outside, you know, the people who've been college educated in Raffland really have no inkling of what that's like
1: No inkling at all. That's Another thing that was important to me in writing this novel was to address class and Environmentalism, which is another thing nobody's really talking about and there's a scene in this novel, in which this this environmental activist from somewhere—you don't really know where, maybe California—comes in and he's trying to get everybody to sign on to this petition, to promise to lower their carbon footprints. And he, <laughs> Telerobia, goes down this list and she says, I, "You know, re, turn down the thermostat. I'm trying to keep the electricity on." You know, he says, um, t- "You know, take take your own cutlery to the restaurant." And she says, I haven't eaten at a restaurant for two years. This man has never even thought about people so poor. And these are ordinary people. They're not sort of the great unwashed or pathetic people. They are they are working poor. They are people who have solid, dignified lives, but they are living hand to mouth. And they're still hoping to have a carbon footprint. So... Um, <laughs> And they're not thinking of it in those terms. But I wanted to think about how much of 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 this uh, sort of the responsibility for change, for uh, sort of addressing environmental issues, rests with those of us who have choices about how we use technology and how we burn fuel.
0: It seemed to me that education in the book was being held out as a, as a great hope, because it's, it's really the thing which, which saves Della Robbia. And you can see her son, Preston, is also, even at a young age, already fascinated by learning and knowledge and books. And there's a, it's a wonderful scene where he wants to buy some encyclopedias in, in this uh, second-hand store. But at the same time, Ovid Byron, the scientist who comes in from outside, is really shocked about the standard of education which is being offered to teenagers in in this town, where sports are more important than science, and given the choice that the, kid, well, the kids are given the choice when when Della Robbia was at high school to go out and play basketball rather than stay in, in science class, that that seemed to be quite a quite a, a direful note to sound, really.
1: Well, it's a realistic one, and there are of course regions where very few people go to college, especially young men, because they can't see, first of all, any way to pay for it. And second of all, they can't see any real evidence that this will improve their lives. Their fathers and their fathers before them were farmers. They knew the land. They had a skill set, or maybe they were carpenters, or maybe they were electricians, but they had work they could do. And so there's a kind of culture of not exactly even indifference to higher education but perhaps suspicion of it. I'm very familiar with this because this is the culture in which I was raised. Not very many people from my high school were lucky enough to go to college. It was not the ordinary thing that was done. And there are legitimate worries. There are worries that if you go far away to university and you get an education, you won't want to come back. You will no longer be a part of your family. You won't be there to take care of your elders. You won't be a part of the community. Or if you do come back, you'll have this sense that, well, the expression where I grew up was that you'll be getting above your raisings. Again, to just mock these this attitude as, as simply ignorant or, or sort of unwashed is, is of no use if you can not be sensitive to the genuine complexities of the issue. But of course education is for people like Della Robbia, it is the way out of this very um, difficult and constrained um, and suffocating life that she's leading, but it's not, it's not easy either for her to see that or to gain it again, there are questions of class, questions of economics, questions of culture that needed to be examined here. Somebody really needed to write this novel. And I thought I had better do it.
0: And although you are implicitly quite critical of the media through the um, the character of Tina, the, the manipulative journalist, other forces, the corporation's you know, the people who really hold the, the strings of power, the politicians, those are all beyond the perimeter of the novel. I wondered, was that something that you felt you didn't want to let let those sort of encroach onto this terrain to keep the focus tighter?
1: That's really beyond the scope of a novel because a novel is personal. It has to remain completely personal. It's about what happens in a room between this person and that person. Unless I were to write a novel about corporate heads and what they do in a room between uh one another that's a whole different novel I couldn't write it I don't know that world but always there's the immediate, there's the action of the novel and then there's all the stuff that happens off stage you have to know all of it and you have to sort of just as I needed to know the science the biology of this novel I needed also to know sort of the mechanisms of disinformation and how that you know kind of comes into the media but it can't be the focus it it just it has to be in the background because what pulls the reader into the page and through the page and keeps the reader turning pages is these people because you decide I mean that's the magic of a novel isn't it that you decide on about page 15 to 20 of a novel that you're going to put yourself aside for a moment and live with these people. And you you know that they're not real, but they you decide that they are real for the time being, and you want to know that what happens to them. So you can't break that pact. I'm not going to say, okay, now that I've got you, I'm gonna take you to the headquarters of you know ExxonMobil. I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna keep you in Delarobia's sphere so that you inhabit her anguish when she's trying to make a christmas for her kids on forty dollars your heart beats faster when you know ovid byron comes in the room you inhabit her world and her hopes and her limitations so that when you're finished and you put this novel down and come back to your life you've been someone else for a while that's what a novel can do that no newspaper no documentary No other form of art or information can do. So I've got to keep tight to the reins and and, and keep the action close.
0: Barbara Kingsolver. Her latest novel, Flight Behaviour, is out now in paperback. For more information about it, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with more interviews with Faber authors. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Alternatively, all the Faber podcasts dating back to 2007 are available on SoundCloud. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.